Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Margins and Murmurations podcast. I'm Kessot Alif, and apparently I am making a podcast which feels quite unreal, and I'm really excited. And what an amazing technology, really. Like, I'm sat here in a field outside the caravan I'm living in, surrounded by trees and kites and tiny little baby tree sparrows who I think might make an appearance on the audio. And you're somewhere else listening to the story and ah amazing <laughs> so yeah thank you for finding this and listening and honoring me with your time so the podcast is called margins and murmurations i'm the author of the margins trilogy and the first novel in the trilogy is called margins and murmurations it's an interesting title because one of the intentions i had with naming it um, was to kind of bring certain images to people's minds. So even if they never picked up the book, and I didn't really expect many people to read the story, really, um, at least the title, they might just see it on a bookshelf or something at their friend's house. And if they know what a memoration is, they would be like, oh, yeah, right, that's a thing. And if they have no idea, maybe they would look it up on the internet or ask somebody and yeah, learn about memorations and stylings. Uh, this first episode of the podcast is dedicated to stylings, and a group of stylings is a murmuration. So why stylings? Why murmurations? What is it all about? I knew them very much when I grew up. Um, they were around a lot. They were very common at that point. Um, they've declined massively in Europe since I was a kid. And they would come often like, to the bird table and to the garden. And they were just like a very familiar species. And they're super gorgeous with all this iridescent feathers and plumage and the, um, yeah, the spots that they sometimes have depending on the time of year and their age and this amazing song that I'll talk about later. And just they're really amazing um and one of the things they're best known for is creating is forming murmurations so murmuration is basically this huge flock with a certain kind of behavior specific to maintaining this flock um where each starling is kind of responding to the group and particularly like its seven neighbors um, and they're kind of moving around together and each one is, yeah, paying attention and responding and the group is affecting the individual and the individual is affecting the group and there's a whole kind of movement building analogy there. Um, and I got to know them, uh, I got to know the murmuration specifically when I moved to Brighton, which is in the south of the English coast. And it's a city. People are going about their day. They've maybe been at work and they, I don't know, are going out and they're like, or maybe they're already drunk on the beach or something. And then suddenly these huge murmurations of starlings would form, um, particularly over the old pier before it got burned down, which was kind of abandoned and left to the starlings. And they had formed, I think, one of the largest populations of starlings uh, at that time in the UK. And uh, maybe it's even the second largest population. And each night, depending on the weather, they would start flocking and form these incredible expanding and changing and moving balls of birds in the sky, basically. And there's some, there was a kind of magic there for me in that suddenly all these people in the city going about their day 
would pause and watch and just be reminded of non-human nature. Um, and, you know, I'm the kind of person that I can definitely, I don't know, a little green bug can land on my leg and I can be just enthralled for 20 minutes. But not everyone uh, experiences that. Not everyone has the opportunity as well. But this was something so big, so spectacular, so mysterious, we don't even know why it happens, that it would get the attention of, like, a lot of people. And people would talk about, ah, oh, did you go to the beach? Did you see the memoration? It was sunset, like, and seeing these incredible patterns of animals against the sun setting sky like it's kind of an incredible thing really i love them so much of course i wanted to uh bring them into the the first novel margins and murmurations they had to be in there somewhere right um so there was a lot of research which is an interesting thing because it is a novel and so according to i don't know how publishing works uh, I wasn't supposed to put in references, uh, but maybe that's what this podcast is. Maybe this is like the chance for me to be like, yes, and then I read this study and this study, and this is where this thing came from. It was a real thing um, because I didn't put references in the novel. Maybe I should. Maybe I should just ignore that rule. But um, yeah, so particularly for the Starlings, I read a lot about them and yeah, anyway, love them. So I was excited to read about them. And, yeah, I think there was, you know, a lot of talk about the proprioception where each individual is responding, as I was saying, to um, their neighbours. And there's, yeah, some very gorgeous metaphors in there of, like, belonging to a group and the individual affecting the group, but the group being, like, leading the individual as well. And, um, and I'm excited about all of that. I also feel like... Um, for me personally, I need all the guidance I can get when it comes to uh, community organizing and movement building. I think I also worry sometimes that I don't want to objectify Starlings. And there's something about perception there for me in that we don't even know particularly why it's happening. Are they like trying to stay warm and like warm themselves up before they go to bed? Are they just having fun? Are they building social relations? Like, there's many theories we don't quite know. Um, as far as I know, and you know, there maybe there's some teachings there for us, and that's really nice. Also, they're doing something specific to them for their own reasons, and their experience of it must be very different uh, up in the sky, being birds um, in their flock compared to me watching them from the beach, looking up at the sky. Right. So there was something I was reading recently. Um, about also perception. I mean, if you look closely at starlings, uh, in general, we can't really tell the, can't easily tell the males and the females apart visually. Mm. Um, so we say that they don't have sexual dichromatism. And what's interesting about that is, you know, humans in general have a certain kind of um, vision using three cones in the eye. And starlings, like most birds, have four cones, meaning that they also have access to ultraviolet. Um, and if you look at a starling under ultraviolet light, there's sexual dichromatism. The males and the females do not look the same. 
maybe there's some things there where they're communicating things within birds um, but keeping secrets from non-bird predators like who don't see UV if they're mammalian. So I feel like there's like, we're always just finding out more. We're like, oh yeah, well they must be doing this because it looks like that. It's like, what? They don't even see that. They see something else entirely. So there's uh, something so gorgeous about like these ever expanding mysteries. Um, with the UV thing, um, there's a kestrel called Ernie, um, and anyone who's read the book will get the reference. Uh, Ernie lives in uh, the area that I'm living right now, and he's a kestrel, he's hunting every day, he's like hovering over the ground, and I was just reading that um, Ernie also has UV sight. Um, well, according to the studies, I mean, I don't yeah, know what he sees, but probably. And uh, he's probably perceiving like lines crisscrossing the fields where I live, which are lines of pee left by uh, voles and mice and things that Ernie likes to eat. And that's really useful because then you know where the mouse went and maybe the mouse is still there at the end of the line and you can hunt the little mouse and get a snack. We can't see that. I can't see it. That's amazing. Um, so just all these like amazing mysteries really. And other things about starlings that I would love to share with you. I was reading about their song and this is something, yeah, I used to live in Berlin. I live just outside of Berlin now. And in Berlin, I don't see like big murmurations, just occasionally like on a rooftop or something, but not so much, not, not regularly. And in general, they like their populations have massively declined across Europe. Um, not so much where they've been introduced, which is a different story. And sometimes I'll be walking with a friend through the park or near the train station, picking them up from the subway or something. And, you know, I'm really rude. I'm supposed to be listening to my friend. They're telling me a story. And suddenly I'm totally distracted because I heard a click or a squee or a um, whistle sound. And I'm like, oh, there's a starling somewhere. And they're like, what are you doing? I'm telling you a story. I'm like, no, 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 wait, wait, we have to find the starling. And yeah, sure enough, there'll be a little group of starlings in Berlin. I often find them in some of the train stations up in the roof and they gather and they flock um, and like return to their roost and sing together. And they have this like incredible capacity for building new songs and kind of incorporating sounds and as I talk about in the novel, that might be like a car alarm or someone's phone or kids playing in the park. And for them, it's just like interesting sounds and they incorporate them into their repertoire to impress each other. Um, and yeah, I guess the theory is the more songs you have, the sexier you are because, you know, you're really smart and you're working really hard and you're accumulating all these songs. Um, and so maybe if we reduce things to genetics, which I don't always want to do, then maybe, uh, yeah, they're really strong, so they're going to pass on better genes to the baby starlings. And talking of baby starlings, one of the other things I read recently about them uh, is that the males are often uh, preparing the nest and building the nest for the female to come and lay her eggs. Uh, and raise the kids and the males you know the nests are usually in some kind of crevice like in a roof or in a hole of a tree or something something usually somewhere dark 
and they not only build a nest but they build like a really nice nest uh, and they're even like putting in nice smelling flowers and like yarrow and other herbs um, I'm also curious if they're putting like antibiotic herbs in there to kind of keep everything clean uh, I didn't read that, read that but I'm super curious if that's true um, because the female wants a nice house and she wants it to smell nice and yeah that story has nothing to do with anything but I thought you should know and yeah, the last story about Stallings I wanted to share uh, also shows up in the novel where I think Ash and Pina are probably drinking some tea in the forest or something. They seem to do that a lot. And they're talking about how complex things are. And I think they were having a conversation about the trans herbal apothecary that they run and how it sucks because they're not able to get uh, synthetic hormones at the moment because of yeah some of the situations in the in the novel and the herbs are great but maybe it's not enough and it doesn't work for everyone and maybe you need a lot and maybe that's bad for the body as well and uh, things are complicated and not everything has an easy solution and one of the parts of that complexity when uh, I think Ash is just like, yeah, but this, but this, but this, and just like adding so much nuance that like there aren't really answers to anything. Uh, and she's mentioning that, yeah, yeah, and also Prozac killed the Starlings. And this is definitely one of the times where I wish I could have like put a little reference note there, a little footnote maybe, um, because I think it was a study in 2015, around about there, just before, um, just before I wrote Margins that um, the study had shown that among some of the other factors that have been devastating starling populations, particularly like pesticides, killing their food, and yeah, changing land practices and things, um, one of the things that seemed to be affecting their breeding success was Prozac uh, getting into the environment. And how complex that is, because obviously what a miraculous drug that so many people in our communities um yeah benefit from and there's definitely magic in that and also it's designed to change animal behavior and a side effect is that it's changing styling behavior um and yeah in ways that are killing the stylings and there's something in there for me about that conversation that, I don't know, it still comes comes back to me. And I think it was one of these conversations that just kind of rode itself in the middle of the night. I was like, oh my God, these characters are like having this little conversation. I wake up and I just like write it down. I didn't really feel particularly in control of it. Um, and there is something there about nuance and complexity and they're just not being easy answers. And I think there's, yeah, that's something I always come back to, um, and I wish it wasn't that way. I wish that I'd just be like, this is the right thing to do. This is the answer to this difficult problem. Um, and unfortunately, <laughs> things are more complicated. And, you know, I love queer ecology, and that is all about complexity, um, which doesn't mean that we don't take action. It doesn't mean that we don't look for solutions. It doesn't mean that we don't build our movements and work on the things that we can work on. And also, I think sometimes we just need to bear in mind, well, there might be many factors that, and things that we're just not perceiving, but they might be there too. And things that I just aren't, I'm just not aware of and to be open to other people's perspectives and other layers to the story that we just don't know yet. And yeah, other creative solutions. Thank you so much for listening to these stories. 
I, uh, yeah, I hope that I've been able to share a little bit of my passion for stylings and murmurations. Um, they're really amazing. If you get the chance to uh, be near some, then, you know, I recommend it. And I really enjoyed recording this for you, just sat outside looking at the sky. It feels uh, amazing to me that we can connect in this way. If you would like to pass this on to your friends or something, then I would love that. I don't have social media, so this is how people find out uh, about my work. And if you'd like to know more about uh, the novels or queer ecology stuff or workshops or any of the other things I'm doing, uh, you can go to otterleaf.com, and that's otter, like the animal, leaf, L-I-E-F-F-E. -E. And there's also a newsletter there, which I send out, like, yeah, every month or every couple of months to let people know what I'm up to. Um, I should be on tour, hopefully in the autumn, so maybe I'll see some of you then. And, and yeah, thank you so much. I hope that you get to be near some birds today and just wish you a really beautiful day. Thank you so much. Bye.